I want to show you two different people. Very different. Whose lives end in very different places. The first is a woman named Yvette Vickers, an extremely successful Hollywood star who died all alone. In the 50s, she had her big break. She got the, star, the leading role in uh, The Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. It's funny, you can giggle at that. It was followed by The Attack of the Giant Leeches. I don't know which part she played in that, but she was famous. She was famous because she was exceptionally beautiful. She was featured in men's magazines. She got roles in all of the country westerns on television. She acted on Broadway. She had many, many movie roles throughout her career. But by steps and degrees, little by little, she ended up all alone. In 2011, a neighbor discovered her body in her Hollywood home. She had died one year prior and no one knew. So utterly disconnected that, that all of those months passed without her being missed at all. At, at her funeral, which was held at the Episcopal Church in Hollywood, her brother stood, and here's how he began the eulogy, and this is a quote. I thought there would be more people here. There were just 29 who came. And this is a woman who was prominent and surrounded by thousands of admirers in her day. And here her brother stood, and he was the only person, aside from the priest, who said anything. He hadn't even seen her since 1995. And it ended, and she died alone. That's Yvette Vickers. The second person I want you to see, Stamatis Moritis. In 1943, this man came from Greece and settled in Port, Port Jefferson, New York. Some of you know where that is. He'd been in the war and had been injured. He found his way to that Long Island town because there were uh, a number of his countrymen who lived in the same island where he grew up, Ikaria, who settled there also. He got a job as a day laborer. He started building a living for himself and his family. In 1976, he noticed it was difficult to climb stairs. He was having a hard time breathing. And this brought him to the doctor who did chest x-rays and sadly reported to Stomatis that it was lung cancer. He went for a second opinion, a third opinion. He went to nine doctors. They all said the same thing. You have nine months to live. 1976. Now, a funeral in Port Jefferson cost around $2,000. He knew that a funeral back home where he grew up would be only $200. And so he and his wife agreed to go back to his homeland to die. He moved into his elderly parents' home, looking out over the Aegean Sea. He rested in the first weeks there, and his mother and his wife took care of him. But then he took a few simple steps. On Sunday morning, he walked to the chapel where his father had been a priest, or his grandfather had been a priest, and he reconnected with his faith. There at church, some of his childhood friends, now he's in his mid-60s at this point, some of his childhood friends recognize him, and they start 
what becomes a daily routine, which is every day they travel to Stamatis' house in the early afternoon for a bottle of wine and conversation for hours. He decides, I might as well die happy. He plants a garden and begins to work in the vineyards, expecting that he won't ever taste the vegetables. But nine months pass, and there he is, alive still. And so his routine becomes every day working the vineyards, and then in the evening walking to the local tavern after a dinner with neighbors and friends to play dominoes till well after midnight with friends and local wine again. That's in 76. Look at this picture right here. This is Stamatis Maritis in 2012 when the New York Times uh, wrote a piece on him called The Island Where People Forget to Die. What do you notice about him aside from his, his beautiful style? <laughs> he looks happy. He's, ha he's filled with joy. He's alive. I mean, that sounds obvious, but he's alive. It's not obvious because a lot of times even when people are surrounded by admirers and thousands of people who want to be around them, they're alone. But here's a man who's alive because he's together with others. The researchers who came to try to understand why do people live so long on the island of the Korea, they looked into everything that a scientist could measure. Diet was one of their main uh, beliefs. It must be what they eat. The woman who served a meal to this New York Times reporter who did his piece told him, it's not what we eat, it's how we eat. She said, in, in, in our place, we don't have a word for privacy. We know each other. We sit together, we look at each other while we eat, we laugh, we take our time, and we stay up too late with each other. These two different people, they're in extremely different places. Yvette Vickers was a woman who died alone. Stamatis Maritis was a man who lived together with others. Very, very different places. But listen, I want you to see this, and this is what we're going to spend our time on this morning. It's very easy to start out, all of us, in the same place, and then it is by little steps in one way or another that we end up either together with others as we were meant to be or on the path of the third habit, which is a habit that always characterizes those who are chronically unhappy, which is the habit of isolating. And we can isolate by ourselves, putting on our protective gear and holding everybody at a distance, or we can isolate in crowds. We can actually keep ourselves from all of the people around us, even though we're surrounded by many. And here's what I want you to see this morning, and I love to be able to say this to you that the path either away from others on the path of isolation or the path toward others, the path of life together, that's a path, those two paths, we're free to take one or the other. All of us are totally free to take one or the other. And here's the thing about you, and I can say this about those of you who I know, whose houses I've been to, and those of you who are strangers to me, all of you were made by God himself to be together with other people. And I know that some of you don't share the beliefs that I have about who God is. Still, it's true. You were made as a woman to be with others. You were made as a man to have relationships that bring life because you're together. And whether you have that or not depends largely on the little steps that you take, either steps away from or toward others. And I want you to see 
with clarity that it's not just me or the report from the New York Times or the LA Times that shows that this is true, but it's actually God's design that we should have life together with each other. And that's where we're going to start to see that God himself has made us like that. And what we're going to what we're going to use to see this is a very old song. Uh, some of you who know the Bible well, you, you know about the book of Psalms. If you know this, like this is a time to shine around your name. Like, yeah, I know that. Because, <laughs> all right, good. Psalms were these ancient songs written by a poet who knew God and knew life. In, in the center of the book of Psalms, or actually toward the end, there's a collection of Psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascent. And these were songs that were sung by religious pilgrims who were making their way from their homes, which at this time were scattered all over the Judean countryside, to come to the temple where God's people were together to celebrate what God had done in their lives. For those journeys, which were all by foot, men and women developed over the centuries these songs to sing with each other. Songs about life. And Psalm 133 is one of those songs, a song about life, which celebrates in particular the joy of what it's like to live together as opposed to dying alone. And I want you to look at that with me first to see a clear assertion from this psalmist. For people like me, this right here, the Bible, this, this contains a vision of life which for me is the right vision. I believe it is for all people too. And, and the vision we're going to see is first how good it is when people are together. Look at, with me, at verse 1 of Psalm 33, uh, 133. Excuse me. Here's what the poet writes. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. Let's, I want to take that statement one bit at a time. Kindred is a word that means family. People who are related to one another by blood. In the communities of folks who were traveling from their homes all around toward that temple, there was a deep-seated belief that when they looked at the people around them, they were seeing sons and daughters of God, that God himself was the heavenly father who had called this people into being and who loved everyone. And so when they saw themselves, they thought son or daughter of God. And when they saw their neighbors coming to the temple, they believed that one is my sister or my brother because we all share the same father. That is what kindred is. Living together in unity. Dwelling together, united. Well, that very simply means getting along. Uh, you'll know what it is to be in a family that doesn't get along. Am I right? It's not good, is it? When there are walls between us. When we're separated from each other instead of united. When, when there are ideas or histories or stories that lead to resentment and pain, it's so utterly life-draining. But the opposite here is this picture of brothers and sisters who are together, who are so close as if they're connected. There's nothing separating them. They're with each other. They know one another. There's no word for private, but in a good way. When that happens, here's what the poet says, two things. It's pleasant. And that means it causes pleasure. And there's a sad phenomenon among some religious communities which picture life as if the more holy you are, the closer you are to God, the, the less you enjoy yourself. Have you ever encountered a religious community like this? It's not meant to be like that. Pleasant means you stay up too late because you're together. 
You, the stories are unfolding and you're just enjoying yourself. You've forgotten what's behind you and you're not worried about what's ahead because what's right here is just so good. You, you laugh too long and you stay up too late. And morning guy has to suffer because of night guy, but... When that happens, it's not only pleasant. Look at the very first phrase there. It's very good. Now, some of you in this room will know the Bible well enough to know that in the very beginning of the Bible, the story of God's creating the whole world is put. And, and, and in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Some of you know this? After God created it all, God looked at what he had made and he said, it is very good. Same words here. And the word good is a word in Hebrew, which you have said if you've ever toasted someone and said, mazel tov. Has anyone done that? Tov is a Hebrew word which means good, but not just in the sense of not being bad. Good in the sense of right, correct, ordered intentionally, following the unique design that God himself had in mind when he made it. When God made the world, he looked at it and said, it's tov. And this poet tells us that when kindred dwell together in unity, it's not only good, it's right. It's not only good, it's ordered just as God wanted it to be. It's not just good and not bad. It's actually according to God's own design. And that means that the picture of a person dying alone is not only sad, it's wrong. Whereas the picture of a man living together with others is not only inspiring, it's right according to God. Now, I want to talk about you just for a moment. You were made to dwell together in unity with kindred. And not just your blood relations, but the people that God himself has brought close to you in your life. And when you do, you will thrive. And when you don't, you will languish. And that means to starve because you don't have what you need. And whether you do or not will largely be a matter, listen, not of one choice you make all at once. Nobody decides I'm going to be isolated from now on. That's not how it happens. It's going to be a matter of the little choices you make along the way. Choices either to embrace life together, and I'm going to show you exactly what those look like, or choices that we make day after day to isolate. And I want to start there. Isolation is not just being all alone forever, and it's not a choice you make all at once. It's the little steps you make. You ready? It's deciding, instead of spending time with a friend, to watch reruns of a show you've seen before for hours. It's deciding to put your heart and your imagination into a fictitious group of friends so that you don't need to do it yourself as much because you live in that show. Do you know what I mean? It's the decision to hide yourself away from the people all around you all the time. To keep your inner life hidden deep down. And do you know what I'm talking about when I say that? Okay, here it is. Ready? Hey, how are you? Inside. I caught sight of myself in the bathroom mirror this morning. I thought an old man had snuck in to attack me. <laughs> Does that happen to anyone else? How am I? None of the dreams I dreamed when I was in college have come to be. How am I? The passion that I learned to expect in life always seems to be one step ahead of me. How am I? The people that I depended on let me down and now I'm hurt in a way that you could never understand. How am I? I don't even have time to clip my fingernails. But you say, oh, I'm fine. How are you? You do this? And what do they say? Oh, I'm fine too. 
the same thing is going on inside of them. Now, I'm not going to advocate opening your heart up to every single person who asks you that. That would be messy. <laughs> but I am going to tell you that dying alone starts with little decisions like that one after the other. Why do we make decisions like that? I'll tell you why. Because when we were little, we heard, be strong. Because when we were growing up, we heard, if this is something that you deal with, don't let anybody know that. They'll reject you. Because along the way, we, we learned to deal with anxiety by hiding it. We learned to deal with regret by pretending it wasn't there and telling ourselves, no, 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 forget about it. We learned to deal with disappointment and anxiety and frustration by pushing it deep down, deep, deep down there and to hide it away, not just from the people around us, but you do this long enough and you're hiding yourself from yourself. You don't even know who you are anymore. And it's exceptionally easy to do this. Here's why it is so easy to hide in plain sight. Do you know what I mean by hide in plain sight? Because all the world's a stage. You know that line? And we are merely players. You know this either because of Shakespeare or the 80s rock band Rush. <laughs> Do some of you know Rush? Okay. Performers and portrayers. I promised myself that I would not sing it, but Getty Lee, look it up on YouTube later, okay? It didn't even start with Shakespeare, by the way. Before Shakespeare wrote those lines, the Renaissance humanist, a man named Erasmus, in his magnificently deep philosophical and theological peace in praise of folly wrote these words. What else is the whole life of mortals but a sort of comedy in which the various actors disguised by various costumes and masks walk on and play each one his part until the manager waves them off the stage. Don't you know what it's like to wear a mask? Don't you? And not just in one place, but you grow up learning to wear a mask everywhere you find yourself. And all the world is a stage because every man and every woman is taught to act. Think this way. Believe like that. Don't struggle with this or that. Don't cry. This is who you're meant to be in the world. And the pressures, the social pressures on you at work, in your family, in your church, to manage your image. Oh, they're so great. What happens is you hide behind a mask. And when you hide behind a mask, you know it that no one knows you. And so if someone does praise the mask, it never touches you because you know, well, if they only saw the man behind the mask, they wouldn't accept me. If they love you, you know, well, they would never accept the woman behind the mask because they don't know who she really is and I'm forgetting to. And before long, you walk on that path and you are alone together. And it's awful. It's so awful. If you've been there, you know how awful it is, right? I've been there. It's just so, the loneliness is crippling. It's like your soul is a desert and it's just dying for some togetherness, which is the rain, but it doesn't fall. Clouds come in and it looks like they're gonna, but they pass right by. And that loneliness is like a prison and it traps a person so that they get stuck there and the only way they can cope with the pain that it causes is to pretend even more. And so it goes and there are so many mechanisms in our culture and in our society and in our environment that are like a stage manager who is terrifying to us, telling us, this is how you must be. And so we hide. And it happens also in the communities of faith, doesn't it? Because I don't want to be the one person in church who's messed up. Guess what? You're all messed up and so am I. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I, I, hope, I hope you're not only clapping for the second part of that statement. <laughs> Wow. 
When we're together, it's pleasant. When we're with each other, it's very good. It's tav. It's life how God meant it to be. What is it like? Let's look at the poet's words again. Remember now, these are the words that they sang. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred dwell together in unity. Imagine those people traveling from their homes to the temple singing this. And then they say this. This is the second line. It is like, look, look up here. It is like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down over the collar of his robes. It's good like that. Am I right that not everyone's like, oh, that's wonderful, an oily beard. <laughs> Sign me up for that. I definitely want that. In those days, it would have meant that when people dwell together, it's as precious as anything that anyone could imagine and as holy as God himself being right there with you. That's what it's like. That's what that means. Aaron was the first high priest of the people of God, the brother of Moses. It was his official God-given role to connect people with God. And the reason God wanted this to happen is God loved all of his people and knew that when they're separate from me, it's misery for them. And so he appointed Aaron, a priest, to mediate between men and God, women and God. And the way that Aaron was set apart for this task was through an anointing ritual which involved very precious oil, oil that was comprised of ingredients from Persia and very, very distant lands. And it was so precious. You can read about the ingredients in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. It was so valued that the only way a community would be able to afford this oil was to put all of their money together and acquire just enough so that on the holy anointing ceremony where Aaron was set apart to bring God and people together, it was a dip of the finger on his forehead. And here the poet says, oh, when you're together, it's like that precious thing, that holy thing that brings people together with God, but not just a dip and a touch on the forehead as if it's dumped out all over the man so it runs through his beard and onto the collars. It's meant to say it is an overabundance of the holiest and most precious thing that anyone can dream of. That's what it's like when you're together with others. Does anyone in here know that from experience? I hope so. I also gather that for most of you, you have less of that in your life that you want than you want. And you do. You're meant to have it every day. It's what God made you for. And the poet here says when you find it, it's holy like being in God's presence. Without a priest, you just with each other. And it's precious, like the most valuable thing you can imagine being dumped out. You could never afford it on your own, but God gives us just that. Listen, when we choose to walk away from the habit of isolation toward the habit of being together, when we're real, when we choose to be together instead of alone, and that's a choice we can make, he goes on with a second simile, which is obscure but equally as magnificent. Look at verse 3. It is, that is when we dwell together, it is like the dew of Hermon. And Hermon is the name of a mountain. It's the name of a mountain that's in the northern parts of Palestine at this time, 9,100 feet above sea level, so that this mountain can be seen from 100 miles away. It's snow-covered all year round. And you might not picture that in this environment, but it is. And because of the snow on the top of Mount Hermon, all of the vegetation in the valleys which surround that great mountain, they live during the dry season instead of dying because of the dew which falls from that peak. 
At night when it gets dark and cold, the, the water evaporates from the snow. It gets trapped in the atmosphere. In the morning when the sun rises and the land begins to heat up, the dew condenses on the plants all around Mount Hermon so that all during the dry season, plants which would otherwise have completely died are able to live and thrive and produce fruit and grow so that flowers bloom and there is beauty. That's what it's like when you live together with others. Things which would otherwise utterly die, live. And some of you know what it's like to live in the desert of loneliness. This poet says, oh, if you would just be together with others, it is impossible life. And this is, this is even better. You see, it says, it's, it's like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains in Zion. Do you see that? Zion are the hills that are around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is 120 miles south of Mount Hermon, which means it's a geographical impossibility that the dew could ever travel from there down to Zion. It's so absurd to imagine this happening that some commentators on the book of Psalms have suggested, let's not translate it as mountains of Zion. That's embarrassing. That doesn't work like that. But that's just the poet's point. When you are together with each other, it is like impossible growth. Growth that's so utterly unexpected as if dew could travel 120 miles over the arid desert. Of course it can't, but that's just the thing. Is there an impossible death in your emotional life? Are you isolated in a way that this critical thing that you know you should have in your life is gone? Your courage has dried up. Your sense of purpose in life has disappeared. Your positivity is gone altogether. If that's true for you, then is it possible for that to grow again? Yes, the poet says, when you're with others. And that's why he goes on to write, there the Lord has ordained his blessing, life forevermore. That is not in Zion or in Mount Hermon or wherever, but in the place where you are together with others. That is the place where the blessing is so good, it's like life forevermore. It's like cancer disappearing without ever going to the doctor. Just because your friends come over every day and you talk and enjoy your life together. Just because every night, instead of sitting down on the couch and watching reruns again, you decide to go out to the local tavern and play dominoes. Is he advocating drinking and playing dominoes at night? Yes, I am. <laughs> Listen, not too much. I'm serious. Sadly, the good things that God has given us in the world are twisted in the devil's hands to ruin us. And so if drink ruins you, find another way. Find friends who will get together with you and stay together with you. And here is what you're going to do. You are going to get on the path of being together with others and get off the path of isolation. And I want you to do this. I want you to do this because I, I don't know why. I want you to thrive. It's just the way God made me. I want the people around me to thrive. That's one reason. But that's not good enough reason for you to do it. I want you to do it because when you start to thrive like that, the world around you will thrive, which I also want. And even that's not a good enough reason to do it. I want you to do this because it's what God made you for. And that's a good enough reason. I'm serious. It's a good enough reason. And here's how you're going to do it. I'm not just going to tell you to do it. I want to tell you very, very clearly how it happens so that this is not just you listening to me and being inspired for a bit, but actually doing something different, moving away from the old habits. In the book of Hebrews, which is a, a book written by one person who undoubtedly knew Psalm 133 and knew that God had made people to be together and knew the joy that comes with life together, this author wrote this line, and I want you to take it in to your heart as I read it. 
Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. The writer who penned those words knew that people habitually separate. Don't do that. Don't neglect being together. But encouraging one another, encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Which day? I'll tell you which day. Today. And stop thinking about yesterday and stop worrying about tomorrow. And today, right now, choose to join together with others and be with them. And there you will receive the blessings that God has given forevermore. Now, I've already said that it's quite easy to be together and isolated. And you know that too, right? That you can wear a mask and be together with others and it won't do you any good at all. It'll it'll make you further isolated. So here, I'm going to add to this guidance these four steps that I want you to take. Okay, here's the first one. When you're together with others, you are going to see and be seen. And what I mean by that is look at that other person in their eyes. Actually, look at them in the eyes. And and in doing that, you will have to allow them to look into your eyes as well. Has anyone else here ever been in a social setting? Maybe an hour passes and you realize no one has even looked in my eyes once. Have you ever experienced that? And sometimes it's because we're too afraid to look at other people. So get over that and let people see you and then see them. I'm telling you, when you do that, you know what will happen? It will be an utterly holy experience. Whether you thought you could like that person or not, whether you agreed with all their ideas or not, whether you believe that you're from the same planet or not, when we see another person and let ourselves be seen, it is a holy moment. And that's the first thing I'm telling you to do to get on this path. If it's only one person or two or three people, look at each other. That's number one. Here's a second. Hear and be heard. It's one of the unique beauties of the human being which God made in his own image that we can speak. That we can say our thoughts, our fears. That we can verbalize the things that terrify us and that we're happy about. And so as you're together with that other or those others and you're looking at each other, talk about life and let let each person have their turn. Don't just be that person who waits for the other person to to say what they want to say and then so you can add your own. You know that, right? Don't do that. Listen. Listen. And, and speak, and then let them speak and listen. You will discover the most magnificent things when you let the people around you talk about what's going on inside of them. It may be scary, but it's okay. God made you for it together. Look at them and speak. Here's the third thing that you're going to have to do if you do those first two, and I promise you'll have to do this. When you see people and hear them, you're going to have to help and let yourself be helped. Because anytime there is a real man or a real woman, and I mean it, a real man, someone who's taken the mask off, you're going to see that they need help. And that's okay. It is. We all need help. You might think, well, I'm the only one who does. All these other people around me have it together. Nonsense. We all do. And God made us to depend on each other. He did not make us alone. He made us together. The habit of isolating is wrong. Opening up and saying, hey, I need help, is, is human and it's beautiful. It's divine and holy. And, and you must, you must not become that person who only ever helps. Have you ever met that one? Never lets themselves be helped. No, we have, it has to be mutual. Those three, see and be seen, hear and be heard, help and be helped. They're going to happen potentially when you do this fourth thing. And this is something that I and the staff here have been talking about for a while and dreaming about. It's our best strategy to help you enjoy life together. It is the fourth thing that you will join a connect group. 
okay? Some of you in this church are in small groups already. And if you are, do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. Keep at it. Some of you are not. You've never been or you have been in the past, but you're not now. For five weeks in a row, beginning on the week of February 12th, there are going to be little gatherings in people's homes that you all are invited to sign up for. Right now we have eight people who've agreed to host people in their house. My wife and I are eager to do this. And what will happen is once a week, we'll gather in in our place and in other places to very simply see each other and let ourselves be seen, to hear each other and, and, and hear others, to help each other. And the way we'll do this is by discussing together what God himself is doing for us as we listen to these nine habits. What do you think about that? If I had a long enough arm, I'd pat myself on the back right now. (laughs) Here's why. Because the ability to say, I haven't really let this out, but I, I worry so chronically that it's killing me and I just need another person to know it. That's a holy thing to do. And we're gonna talk about worrying in the weeks ahead. Or this. I haven't really told you guys this, but I compare myself to others every day all the time, and I never measure up. We're going to be able to say that in each other's presence. There are going to be sign-up sheets at the cafe when I'm done, and I'm asking you to consider this. If you don't want to sign up or you're just passing through town and you're going to move on, make your own group like this. But we're doing this here because we believe that life together is not just good, it's how God meant it to be. And I'm asking you to consider signing up. I want to tell you one last thing. You know what keeps people alone most? I want you to think of this. It's a heavy thing. It's shame. So I don't know the story of Yvette Vickers, how she got there. It wouldn't surprise me in the least that somewhere along the line, she learned that she was no good. And her compulsive desire for praise from out there matched her inner sense that she wasn't worth much. And that's what shame is like. And I know it. I'm sad about this. A lot of you suffer because you've learned to be ashamed of yourself. So here's why I want to go here at the end. You are free to walk away from the lies that tell you you're not worth anything because of Jesus. And I know that not everybody's in the same place about Jesus, but just let me tell you this. The theme of the New Testament is that God looked at every man and every woman, those who languished apart from him, who were like dry deserts, and loved them so much that he came himself in Jesus to rescue them. And the way he does that is first and foremost, embracing them even with all of the things they've learned about themselves that are wrong to be ashamed of, so that they are utterly free because of his death for them. And if you don't understand how this works, it's not something I'm going to explain in these minutes. It's going to be another time. But just listen to this, so that they were free to walk away from all of that mess and embrace a new life, joyful and glad and utterly forgiven. And so if you would come into one of these places, ashamed of who you are, you are free to be utterly okay, because God in Christ has loved you and forgiven you and redeemed you. Isn't that great? That's a rule if you go to one of these groups. Here's a second one. This is also great. Another thing that keeps people apart is when religious people think it's their job to be the judge of others. That job's already been filled. And you know who's taken that job? Jesus Christ. This is another teaching of the Bible. And again, not everyone's in the same place here, but 
We read that Jesus ascended into heaven and he sits on the right hand of the Father from whence he will judge. And it is such a good thing that he's our judge because he's merciful. He knows everything about us and he loves us. And so we are free from having to judge the people around us even if what they are doing is manifestly bad. And there are things that people do that are terribly horrendous for them, but we don't have to judge them. We're free to accept them and love them because God in Christ has done that for them and for us too. That's the second thing. (laughs) I could just laugh. Here's one more. Jesus frees us from being in the center of our lives. And when you put yourself in the center and are selfish like that, then you can't really be with anybody else. You will die alone. But when God comes in Christ, he rescues us by saying, I get to be at the center. And then we can love the people around us, whoever they are. And then it will be like the most precious and holy thing imaginable, more than we could even handle. It would spill out all over us. And then it would be like impossible growth and joy. And then it would be like living together instead of dying alone even now. Should we pray together? Let's do that. God, thank you for coming to rescue us from loneliness. Thank you for, in Christ, giving us the forgiveness that makes us new. Thank you that we're free to never have to be ashamed again, ever. And thank you for making each one of us as we are different from each other. I thank you also that you have rescued us from being the judge and and taken up the center of our lives. Inspire us to love the people around us and be together with them. God, I ask very, very concretely now that the connect groups which this church is going to be offering in the coming weeks would become instruments that you use to bless people. I pray that it would encourage life together in a way that would cause us to shine, not so that people would look at us and be impressed, but rather so they would be drawn to you and be rescued. I thank you for the friends that you've already given me in this place. I thank you for the opportunities that are ours every day to embrace life together. And I pray that each person here would be less inclined to move toward the habit of isolation and more inclined to move toward life together because of our time with each other this morning. Thank you for every moment you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.